Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak podcast. Thanks for everybody for being here. Today, I am uh, excited to have uh, Monica Peters uh, on the podcast with me. Hello, Monica. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me. Oh, so great you could come. Monica's a, a, a BCBA working on the east coast of Canada. You've kind of been moving across the country with uh, with these podcasts. I'm a few in BC, a few in Ontario, uh, one in Quebec, and now we're heading into the Maritimes, which is pretty exciting. It's nice to see that uh, you know behavior analysis is is growing over there. I, I was an east coast kid. I grew up in New Brunswick, spent a lot of years there, and uh, so you know I'm familiar with the area. But I know. Uh, when I first kind of got into the field, services were pretty dismal, and there wasn't a lot of options, and so I kind of had to move out west to um, to start working. So it's nice to see that things have kind of moved east. So um, Monica is, uh, I don't have a bio in front of me, but I know Monica's a BCBA, and I know she does some work in kind of hospital settings, and, and she's also the president of the... Uh, uh, not so old uh, Atlantic Provinces Association for Behavior Analysis, and for any of those who are out here wondering why people say Maritimes or Atlantic, <laughs> that's <laughs> often a a thing. And for some reason, Newfoundland and PEI and Nova Scotia and New Brunswick or Atlantic Canada cut out Newfoundland, and you're in the Maritimes. I don't really understand it, but it, it does <laughs> make fodder for a lot of uh, jokes, which I'm sure a lot of folks are familiar with if you're living on the East Coast. Monica, uh, maybe just I'd like to kind of start with, um, uh, you know, a bit of a, an origin story like a lot of the other interviewers do. Tell me kind of how you got into 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 the field and, you know, eventually into ABA and kind of to where you are now. Sure. Yeah, I uh, started working with children, uh, teaching them swimming, actually, when I was 16 years old. I was a lifeguard at camp and worked at the local YMCA And I used to volunteer for uh, this program called Aqua Kids. And it was for, if I remember correctly, it was, you know, six to 14, 15 years old who had um, learning disabilities, ADD, ADHD. Uh, We had a few children diagnosed with autism as well. And that was kind of my first experience uh, with that population. And I instantly fell in love. I had never heard of ABA before. Hmm. And uh, one of the uh, participants' moms actually asked me if I had ever heard about, about ABA and asked me if I'd like to attend one of her son's sessions. So I did. And I uh, quickly applied to the first kind of ABA center. It was home-based at the, the time. And I spent a few years there. I then uh, did my bachelor's at Concordia University in psychology and went on to my master's at Brock University in applied disability studies. And from there, I moved to a center-based ABA uh, program. And my BCBA supervisor, Myra Jade Louie, was the clinical supervisor at this program. And I did all my hours there and learned everything from her. Um, and then I guess I moved down to Florida I kind of, I did the opposite of you in the sense that I, you know, there weren't a lot of opportunities outside of the clinic that I was at as a BCBA and I wanted to kind of spread my wings. So I ended up going south before moving to Halifax, uh, where (laughs) there were more opportunities uh, for behavior analysts kind of starting out. 
compared to Montreal. So I spent a year in Panama City, Florida, and I moved back up to Halifax and worked for the early intensive behavior intervention program here at the IWK Health Center. And from there, I about two and a half years ago now, I applied for a behavior analyst position, the second behavior analyst position in Nova Scotia, Hmm. working in a multidisciplinary team at a community outreach program for adults with dual diagnosis. So moderate to severe intellectual disability plus uh, mental health diagnoses. A lot of our uh, clients also have autism, but it's not a, a kind of criteria within our program. So that's kind of a, a <laughs> quick, quick backstory. So the, the stuff, uh, the early years, so where were you for this Aqua Kids thing? Where was that? I was the NDG YMCA. <laughs> so it was just our local Y. Um, it was a program set up by a couple of my my now friends, and uh, they were looking for volunteers. And it was every Friday night from five thirty to eight thirty. We did swimming, art, and gym with them. So I I was normally put with the the littles, so the six to nine year old range, and I, I loved it. I did it for so many years. I think eight or nine years anyway. And that was Montreal. Are you from Montreal? Are you from Quebec? Or I am, yeah. Born oh, okay. and raised. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Right on. And so Concordia, that makes sense. And then the Brock. And then that, that ABA center, was that in Montreal as well? Yeah, it was part of the government uh, government uh, program, I guess. So it was a, an IBI program. So mm. four to six years old. And it was, at the time, it was, depending on the age of the child, when they started service, they stayed until mm. they were six. So some children got, you know, eight to 10 months service. Some children got, you know, two years of service. It just depended on when we picked them up. I think it's changed a bit now, but back then that's how it was set up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and from the little, I understand about kind of the the system in, in Quebec for ABA. I had a, I did an interview with uh, Mark Lenova yes. and uh, he was, sort of filling me in and he was saying that there's not much there's not much in terms of of education for bcbas um uh over there do the folks in the ibi programs there are are they certified or like the clinical supervisors are um or the i don't know what the term is in english but they're kind of like clinical supervisors there's three of them now in the center and they are all certified and then the Mm. rehab assistants are i I can't remember the qualifications for them. I believe they have to have a bachelor's degree and, Mm. you know, perhaps experience working with children and or children with autism. But it's just surprising that the, 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 you know, the most populous province in Canada doesn't have uh, any kind of schooling for, for ABA, I guess. Yeah. And I think the bilingual piece too, uh, I know mm. when I was there, I can't really speak for, for Quebec now, but you know, when sure. I was there, I know the, the bilingual piece was hard. Mm. We didn't have really set translations for, you know, some of the, the behavior analytic principles mm-hmm. and, and behavior change procedures and stuff like that. So I think that was a barrier, f- I, I, I think, uh, for, you know, programming and, and certification and stuff like that. Uh, I think that was yeah, a barrier that, for me anyway. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. And I just know there's uh, there, there's starting to be a growing demand for uh, 
French language uh, materials in ABA. Absolutely. Um, I've been, uh, I, I, again, I'm not trying to sort of plug myself too much on, on, <laughs> on your episode, but the, the interview I did with, um, with um, uh, Addie Corden, who was in Senegal, and she was telling me that, you know, ABA, ABA is spreading like wildfire in Africa right now, which is great. Uh, and, and, and that there's a lot of opportunity, I guess, for programming all the way up kind of the West Coast of Africa. And she says there's probably 250 million French-speaking folks there. Oh, my um, gosh. And so she she's really on a mission to sort of translate a lot of things so she can, you know, start to get the services out there. And so she's been trying to contact uh, French-speaking um uh, behavior analysts from around the world that could help with translating. And I did connect her with a, a couple names in, in Quebec, but uh, uh, there seem to be more choices in, in France and other parts of the world than, than up there. So yeah. That's amazing. That, there, there's that bear. Yeah, no, really cool. <laughs> she's, she's, uh, she's a trooper. She's uh, um, really, really working hard to kind of spread the word down there. Um, you're working as a behavior analyst on a multidisciplinary team. Are you still out of the IWK? No, I'm actually with the Nova Scotia Health Authority now. So it's, mm. it's you know, they're kind of combined but separate. The IWK is the children's hospital, so they go up to 19 years old. And then once the adolescent hits, hits 19, they kind of age out of the IWK and then we have our our referral process and and we get referrals both from the IWK as well as from the public, uh, either physicians or family members. So we're separate gotcha, but gotcha, together, gotcha. I suppose. <laughs> but now you're mostly working with adults. I am. Yeah, it was quite a switch. I was uh, working with children for, you know, I think I've been, I think I calculated it. I've been doing ABA for about 12 years now. And for, you know, nine of those 12 years, I was working with with children. So when I decided to take the move to the adult population, I I sought out um, one of my BCBA friends in Ontario, Jennifer Jarvis, who mentored me immensely to because it's such a different population switch from, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, four to six year olds diagnosed with autism to 19 and up with, uh, you know, multiple diagnoses in, in various uh, housing you know, some live with their families, others live in small options homes and, totally. and such. So many, many differences. And the supervision that I that I received from Jen, kind of the mentorship helped me uh, gain gain my confidence for sure. That's amazing. Well, good for you for getting that mentorship to develop that piece. It's a whole other world with adults for sure. Yes. Not only in terms of all the all the things you mentioned, but also everything around kind of adult rights and consent and absolutely and i imagine a lot of what she taught you may not have applied because you're in a different province because it seems to change from province to province so much yep absolutely she was working or she is working in a similar program than i am now so it was you know there were definitely similarities I think there, you know, Ontario is quite a bit farther in terms of, you know, decreasing institutionalized institutionalization and, you know, some of the, the it's my understanding anyway, that, you know, the group homes and small options homes have very different dynamics, which is I'm kind of envious of uh, mm. seeing the state of affairs here. But, but there were, I feel more similarities than differences. Um, and I was able to kind of apply her experiences um, and her help with my own clients for sure. Perfect. So you do a lot of work then in, in these kind of residential care settings? 
Yes, absolutely. I have, uh, there's another BCBA who works on the psychiatric unit. So there's the same criteria as, as um, the community program, but it's, um, the unit is for our clients who are having acute psychiatric you know, crisis or acute psychiatric question um, that the psychiatrists want to kind of uh, learn more about. And so we have, you know, she's on that side and then I'm on the community outreach team. Most of my clients are in either small options homes. So that's, um, I want to say three or less individuals living in the home and then a group home is four or more. I'm in less of those and I'm in as well some family homes, of course. Mm, okay. Yeah, I haven't heard that that term before, small options homes. Do you know what that means? Or does it just mean that there's less people in it? Yeah, I believe so. There might be some other, you know, de- descriptors for, mm-hmm. you know, why it's called a small options home. But sure, I, sure. I I realized that, that it, it might be an Atlantic or a Nova Scotian term because a few people I know that I've met have asked why, you know, what small options homes are. So I think it's it's must just be the the number of people living in the home and the amount of supports, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, I know I know in BC, they're all they're all called group homes, but we have licensing. So in the same way you would have for daycares and other places, we have licensing for group homes, but you only have to get licensed, which is a whole massive amount of, uh, you know, uh, standards and testing and assessment and whatnot and and criteria that's got to be met and so on and so forth. If you have three or more residents in the group home, if you have one or two residents in the group home, then you can operate as an unlicensed group home, uh, which means you're not under sort of that scrutiny. Um, uh, uh, the pros being, because you're not under that scrutiny, the pros from a sort of, uh, it allows for a lot more sort of independence on the part of the the staff team to kind of, you know, basically do what they want and you're, you're able to be quite a bit more person-centered i think and it also allows more you know options for the consultants as far as recommending things when you get into sort of the licensing level i understand why it kind of comes out of that sort of seniors model it's, the goal is to sort of you know keep folks safe and you know obviously you know mitigate abuse and that sort of thing and make sure folks are getting fed well and yeah. all, all their basic needs met but the problem becomes that the basic needs are dictated in, in such a way. So you've got to have a menu plan that follows the four food groups, even if you don't like vegetables, you know, Absolutely. sort of things. So it becomes a lot less person-centered and a lot more <laughs> based on, you know, documentation and, and regulation. And and uh, it can actually be become quite a bit of a barrier, you know, in some ways. You have to clean the whole house with, you know, uh super toxic, uh, you know, harsh chemicals to to kill all the germs. Whereas in the unlicensed home, you can just use vinegar like everyone else does. Absolutely. Yeah. It's similar to here. I think in terms of licensing, I've been in some homes that are both licensed and unlicensed and you're absolutely right. I, I just get the sense that the amount of responsibility that the staff undertake in licensed homes are just incredible. They're you know, responsible for both the cleaning and, you know, very mm-hmm. thorough and specific cleaning, the meal prep, the menus, the grocery shopping, and the client's care and their mm-hmm. engagement and skill teaching and, you know, just the sheer responsibility that they under undertake is is astronomical, in my opinion, anyway, in these licensed homes, for sure. 
And I think that's really important to kind of you know, know, and maybe that's, I don't know if that was part of your mentorship, but that's really important to kind of know kind of going into these kind of work settings because you're going to start, you know, uh, doing assessments and placing demands on staff. Um, and, you, and you may be kind of coming at it from the perspective of, well, they're paid. So, you know, <laughs> it's their job to follow my plan, you know, and that sort of thing, not realizing that it's also their job to do 800 other things every day. Oh my gosh, Ben, I was a disaster when I started working <laughs> consulting in adult in uh, with adult population and going into small options homes because it was exactly that. I came from a clinic setting where, you know, I got paid to do run these programs and I would beat my head against the wall because I'd get so frustrated. Why aren't things changing? Why isn't the staff doing this, this and this? And I would just get so angry and yes, Jen definitely um, helped me or coached me through under like remembering that their number one job is not skill teaching. Their number one job is to keep everyone safe, everyone happy, fed, clean, and you know, their cleaning and cooking responsibilities adhered to. And I, it was a very long, arduous learning curve for me (laughs) to say the least. Yeah. Cause it's interesting. Cause I mean, our, our goal, you know, uh, as you know, behavior consultants, especially in, in sort of, you know, with, with adult working with adults, I, I think is less so focused even on sort of specific skill building per se, you know, you know, rates of responding and all these sorts of things that you kind of may focus on in, in the clinic setting. I have seen, I should I say most because I have seen, we do out, out here have um, what they call uh, an ABA teaching home, uh, which is essentially oh. a staffed residential resource, like a group home, but it's custom funded. I, I think it's a fairly expensive program. It's a, uh, you know, run by a B, run by one or more BCBAs, um, with, um, you know, RBTs and whatnot, all sort of on staff. And the whole, the whole home is designed for this individual on a shorter term basis, maybe a couple of years to, um, you know, teach skills and generalize and get them out of the home. And so I've seen ABA teaching homes that have full on grocery lines in the living room to go practice wow. standing in line in the grocery store, those sorts of things. And so really um, uh, just very te- technically designed homes um, and the staff are in there for one purpose to not do all those things that um, that we just talked about. But that's so rare and really doesn't happen that Oh my often. gosh, that sounds like a dream home. <laughs> it does in a way. It sounds like it's a lot of fun. And uh, ever interested in sort of learning about that model, there's uh, two BCBAs out here uh, that have spent a lot of time uh, doing this. And they went down to the States and kind of learned from some models that were done down there. Sharon oh. Baxter and Katie Allen, and they're, they're really well known for their, the, the, the work they do in kind of ABA teaching homes with generally with folks that have extremely severe challenging behavior that's sort of the piece that's there so we're not dealing with folks that are you know in group homes for other reasons like medical reasons and whatnot for sure and uh, i've heard some good things but i don't know how cost effective they are i mean they could certainly speak to that absolutely in fact, I, I i may um I should just write this down and maybe have an interview with them and find out some more about it, actually. Absolutely. I was going to say, I will, if, if, if they're ever listening, I will be contacting you, Perfect. Sharon and yeah. Katie. <laughs> definitely. No, that definitely. sounds, yeah, that sounds like a, a direction that we would want to move in to yeah. for sure. Just get more information.
If you're planning on purchasing continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to go to www.cbiconsultants.com and go to the store tab. There you'll need to enter the three secret words. The first secret word is act. Financially, though, it's, I think it's a difficult one, but, of course. Uh, but it's a nice idea. But it's kind of coming back to the context you're, you're currently in. And so, you know, you're dealing with uh, staff that I don't think they're – my point was that I don't think the goal of these folks is, is increasing quality of life and independence. Um, no. Now, I think they aren't out there to, you know – lessen quality of life. That's not their goal, of course. But I don't know that there's any, that kind of training exists. I don't know that they have all those specific pieces. And, and so that group home staff often come from, you know, a minimal, not always a minimal educational background. I mean, I think more and more, they, they've increased requirements now. And a lot of them, I think, do have at least a diploma, if not an undergrad degree in something. But um, there's no sort of specified schooling for group home staff that I know of. I don't think so either. And I, I find just hearing what, you know, how some of the frontline staff are trained, the, you know, quote unquote behavior component is, you know, a two hour lecture versus obviously medication um, administration and cooking and cleaning and, you know, stuff like that is very important. But, you know, they take up days and days of training. And so that quality of life piece does, and even that behavior management piece does sometimes kind of get gets lost in the weeds and, and it's too bad because I think it's what the staff really want or mm -hmm. are really passionate about a lot of them anyway, they want to know how to, how to increase their, their residents interests or how to, you know, make the showering routine a little bit easier or things, things like that. And, and it's, it's too bad that they don't really know where to go and, and the support, you know, might be lacking in that, in that respect. And so what, what tends to be the go-to kind of, you know, prior to you arriving and, and, and offering services, what tends to be kind of the go-to strategies for staff to deal with, you know, challenging behavior, especially one's behaviors that might be uh, violent in nature? Absolutely. So I, a lot of redirecting. So particularly for the early warning signs or the precursor behaviors, a lot of redirecting to other activities. And then for the more extreme or more severe behaviors of concern, I would say a lot of PRNs and just kind of moving everybody away. Sometimes, you know, some reprimands might happen, uh, occasionally 911 calls and, and or dropping the resident off at the emergency. I think that's really, you know, obviously in very extreme cases. Mm. But a lot of times they call the on-call supervisor and, and kind of hope for the best. Mm-hmm. Uh, just for folks that may be not familiar with the terms, what's, what's a PRN? So PRN is a, in this, in normally in these situations, they would be a chemical restraint. So mm. like lorazepam or quetiapine, I don't know the, right. the uh, store names for them. I think Ativan is, is yep. lorazepam, any sign of the, uh, severe challenging behavior. This pill is provided to the resident and, you know, it helps the, the person calm down, whether it's, you know, right away or within a couple hours. It, uh, right. yeah, that's, that's kind of the, the functioning around it, you know, in the non, the non-medical, <laughs> the non-medical understanding. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and, and it is, 
Hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. I I I learned I learned uh, PRN stands is is Latin. It's yes. pro renata. It basically means as needed, um, and so it's an as needed medication. And so even taking a Tylenol for a headache would be a PRN, um, or 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 you know, putting ice on a wound could be a PRN. But certainly in 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 these so-called, you know, behavioral type homes, you know, which is an interesting name. I don't know. We, I, we often yeah. have them, the group homes where the folks that engage in challenging behavior live are often <laughs> called the behavior home you know, for, for a behavior analyst. is such Sounds a funny about term. Right. But uh, so this is a home where people do things. Ah, yes. Excellent. Good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the PRN tends to be, you know, the, 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 the most, uh, you know, the most powerful intervention that they sort of have in their toolbox often and often that's accompanied with and i don't know what the context the scene is like yeah. in nova scotia but often that's also complemented with restraint i'm sure we do i but i don't witness a lot of restraint actually at all um especially i'm trying to i'm trying to think back to to many of my clients and no i think restraint is really not used at least in the small options homes that i've been in which is great. It's, you know, the PRN is really their go-to mm. redirection and, you know, either staff leaving, um, perhaps they are redirected to their room, but there's no, you know, locked doors or, you know, timeout procedures put in place just because. Mm. So I, I do have to say that there's the, the amount of restraint is, is quite low from what I've seen here in, out in the community, in community settings. Are there are there like provincial regulations around some of those things that like you said they don't lock folks in rooms, they don't do timeout, they don't probably do seclusion and things like that? Yes. Yeah, we do have I I, I don't remember. I did see a a um was it legislation or it was a document. It was quite a while ago. I think it needs to be updated. But uh exactly. I think there are, you know, reasons why perhaps the residents in the houses don't escalate to that point. Um, you know, demands are reduced in the homes. It's a lot of the, the individual's choice, and which is fantastic. Sometimes it can go the other way where you have clients, you know, making choices mm. that, you know, might, might put them at in harm's way. Just I can think of some dietary choices and, you know, the client's decide to leave the home and, you know, go down to, to the 7-Eleven or the gas station sure. or wherever, because it's their choice. So, you know, things like that might happen, which is kind of on the other end of the spectrum. Um, but for the most part, it's kind of the, the reduced demands will give the individual, you know, what they want, when they want, it's their choice. And in so doing, you know, that's, that's perhaps been a reason why I haven't seen it any restraints in the homes or you know what sometimes I think I'm probably have been referred clients where mm -hmm. maybe they have used restraint in the past or they are but I'm not there you know or what have you but but uh, yeah mm -hmm. it's kind of an interesting interesting balance that I'm I constantly find myself in of you know it's the person the person's an adult it's their choice they can do what they want they have you know it's their right and which is again it's fantastic and it's what we need more of uh, especially hearing having some conversations with other professionals who work with the adult population it's not that way in a lot of parts of the world so I am so grateful that in 
in this part, we are, we are where we are. It, uh, mm-hmm. But it does have some challenges, especially when, when some of the choices that the resident is making, perhaps they, you know, finding that balance of choice of treatment and personal choice and right to treatment. It's a long-winded answer, Ben, sorry. <laughs> No, it's a good answer. And I think I think they're kind of ahead of the maybe a little bit ahead of the game over there. It would be interesting to kind of dig into that some more. I know out here in the in sort of these residential settings, restrictive practices are are quite common. And now now I I, I should preface the government and the, so the the adult kind of services, the, the the bodies that kind of oversee adult services do have some really strong regulations in place and and rules and things you can and can't do. And they've sort of categorized things as prohibited practices and then restrictive practices. And the prohibited practices are things you just can never do. Um, Those include a lot of the ones you mentioned. You know, we can't lock people up in rooms, seclusion, that sort of thing. Obviously, any kind of physical violence, um, but also none of the, uh, you know, kind of... uh, Strategies you might have seen in in ABA's early days with uh, you know shock and and uh, you know water sprays and yeah. ammonia sprays and lemon sprays and all different kinds of sprays I guess were uh, lots of water guns I guess were being shot back in right. the day at people's faces and that sort yeah. of thing um, sort of being sarcastic but actually that was the case um, most of that is is not allowed uh, I think in BC now but we do have a lot of restrictive practices which. These are things that can be put into place, uh, usually rec- written up and recommended by uh, BCBA, as well as usually some uh, physicians involved in some way. And these can be anything like things like you said, chemical restraints. These could be physical restraints. So we do see physical restraints written up. We do see things like um I think they call it exclusionary timeout yeah. where yes. where you're you're you are in a room and 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 uh and you're alone but there's someone either right there at a window looking at you or some someone right there in the room with you so and then also th- then other things like locking the fridges and locking doors to access things and secure locks to keep people from running out into the road um or any or 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 maybe more uh you know smaller restrictions I, I don't smaller is the right term but things like seatbelt buckle yeah. locks and, and and those sorts of things and all, all those are kind of following these restrictive practices that require you know um uh some sort of safety plan that's written up and signed off by a bunch of folks um and then the behavior support plan is supposed to kind of come in theoretically and uh work to eliminate those practices over time that's so interesting that you gave the examples of uh seatbelt locks and or seatbelt buckle buckle locks and and locks in the fridge and like locks on you know the inside of front doors now that I'm thinking about it I definitely have seen been in homes with with those types of just and I I completely forget that yeah there are restrictive practices as well so they're you know you're not physically moving someone's body or physically restraining their body but you're just restraining or restricting you know access to either the outside or you know, undoing yep. their seatbelt. So, you know, we have some some of those for sure going on. And so those are pieces you really got to consider when you're saying, you know, they're adults and they're free to choose, <laughs> right? You yes. Know, they I'm, are, but... <laughs> I've had many, uh, many a conversation of why do you have this, but not this? Why are you allowed to do this, but not this? How come, you yeah. know, if you look at 
restricting access this way, but not this way. What's the difference? And it's a yeah. constant kind of back and forth with with certain agencies for sure. Um, and I think the yeah. licensing and unlicensing plays a plays a huge role, like you said. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think one thing we can definitely agree on is we've got you know really busy staff, <laughs> oft, often overworked, often low paid, yeah. and probably a lot of them, you know potentially even at the point of burnout um, on some level. But usually most of that, you know, except maybe the underpaid piece is, is a result of, you know, the, the, the challenging behavior that the residents are engaging in or what, you know, whether it be the, uh, you know, uh, the restrictions you have to put in place. So, so sort of safety kinds of concerns or the fact that they have to do everything for that individual because, you know, the, the, the behaviors they engage in don't make it unsafe to say to have them in the kitchen or unsafe to have them participate in those chores or, or what or, or whatnot. Absolutely. And they have a, um, a very, you know, they get into that, the reactive mindset or the reactive kind of, kind of daily, daily lull. So, you know, if the client is in their room watching their movie for 16 hours a day, that's great. And as soon as they start to show warning signs or, you know, any other escalated behavior, that's when the staff go in. And then all of a sudden you're managing behaviors of concern um, versus that proactive piece of, hey, let's build your positive interactions with the client. Let's, you know, expand their interests. Let's have some, you know, first bends in place or, you know, proactive rules or whatever it is. Um, so there's there's that piece too. And I, I I have to, I can totally appreciate where staff get burnt out because mm-hmm. nobody wants to be putting out fires as the the better part of their day while they're at their job. But they, you know, a lot of the staff don't know that proactive piece and how much easier it can be, um, you know, energy wise <laughs> and and fun and fun wise, you know, as they start to see the client interact, initiate an interaction with them as opposed to the staff always being the one to ask them to do stuff. You know, those those little little pieces of reinforcement that the staff get from the client when those proactive pieces are in place. It's a, a huge pattern that I see. hundred <laughs> percent. And and for me, just uh, my, the way I kind of got into this field, I got into this field as a frontline staff in group homes. Um, and so I, I was for many years, frontline staff in residential care, going to move my way up to managing a group home for a bunch of years and uh, eventually, you know, realized, you know, uh, I didn't really know what I was doing and tried to find some other training and kind of led led down this direction. So, I mean, I can totally relate to these folks on a, on a lot of levels. And, and sort of the, so the piece that we kind of keep coming back to is, is we've got strategies that work in our field and in our in our in our technology. And we've got, you know, lots of good proactive antecedent type things we can put into place. I think it's it's pretty easy for us to sort of imagine, you know, the record flipped and and a really and a really you know positive climate in 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 a group home with that with happy residents you know living full lives and a great quality of life. The barrier is how do we get these staff teams to to implement these programs? Oh my right? gosh! And as, you know, how do we get them to implement the programs when you know they're currently getting beaten up? all day, every day. Like I, you know, in yeah. being in those situations where I'm trying to talk about the antecedent strategies and they're like, but I'm getting hurt. 
I didn't sign up for this. And you're, you know, I've met, you know, a, what is the expression between a rock and a hard place many a time, because I, yeah. I can't even imagine the situations that they're in throughout their day. But then knowing the grass is greener on the other side, if we put some preventatives into place, it's, it's, uh, it's really hard trying to find that, that kind of quote unquote in <laughs> with the staff, small wins, and then kind of building from there. Totally. And so that kind of leads up to kind of um, how I, how I found you in the first place. And so, you know, I, I, as I said before, I try to interview folks that, um, you know, are doing things that, you know, it's selfish that, that I find really interesting and, <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, that, that, that seemed cool to me. And there's lots of folks out there that are doing lots of cool things that may never hear from me because they're just in areas that I just don't have an interest in. Um, and, uh, there'll be lots of other podcasts, uh, that will be available to kind of cover those topics. Um, and so right away, knowing you're working in group homes right away, that immediately rang one bell in my head that knew, I knew I had to talk to you. The, the second piece that really kind of, kind of drew me to, to the work you were doing was the fact that you were, the fact that you were using, using ACT, uh, acceptance and commitment therapy within your practice in these settings. And I, I love seeing, um, other relatively untapped areas of our, of our field being applied in completely different contexts. For example, I, I read a paper a while back and I'll see if I can find it for you. Cause you might find it interesting oh, yeah. too, uh, where they, where it was, um, using precision teaching to, uh, increase the fluency of staff implementing behavior support plans and group homes. What? I'd be very interested. Yeah. <laughs> like that sounds so cool so to me. Cool. So I got to find the paper again and find the author and, and interview them. Cause that's just something so yes. neat to me. What's also really cool to me is the idea of using acting group homes um, and, and, and the kind of work you're doing. And, and you're probably the first person that I know of that's really doing this kind of work, certainly maybe anywhere. I know Tina Long is also doing yes. some of that work, and we're going to touch on her later. Before that, you, I, you were the first I had heard of doing this, and that just, and that just blew my mind. Um, and so I kind of want to get into kind of getting into that piece now a little bit on how sort of you know, uh, the, the concepts of ACT have, have really helped you kind of build rapport with staff teams and, uh, you know, gain some more buy-in and get, get folks kind of looking at the picture in a completely kind of different way. Um, changed my life. <laughs> changed your life. So maybe what, what, before we kind of talk about, you know, the bread and butter of kind of how you're using ACT, you know, um, and, and the concepts of ACT within group homes. Um, maybe tell me a little bit about first kind of what drew you to ACT and what kind of training you kind of did in ACT. And maybe just a quick overview for folks that may not know. I know there's a lot of stuff out there on ACT and, and we could certainly recommend some things for folks on just on just what ACT even is. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I've been reading about ACT for a while, maybe, you know, a couple of years prior to, to kind of really getting into it. I was thinking more, you know, learning more about ACT more for myself than for my practice. I had read, you know, A Liberated Mind and uh, ACT Made Simple, uh, a couple of books, one by Stephen Hayes and the other one by Russ Harris, I believe. And I, mm. I 
understood it, but I, I didn't really know how to apply it to my practice. And mm -hmm. I had practiced some of the, the uh, exercises and I was kind of, you know, it was really interesting to me. Finally, uh, yeah, Tina Long actually was the one that kind of got me into uh, the ACT Matrix. She had met Kevin, Dr. Kevin Polk. He was the, the founder of the ACT Matrix. And uh, she had kind of messaged me and said, hey, uh, Dr. Polk's doing this, has this really cool process that I think you'd really enjoy. We had spoken um, about, you know, consulting in group homes and working with the adult population quite a bit. So I jumped on board and started meeting with both Kevin and Phil Tenalia, who's a school psychologist who uses uh, the ACT matrix um, in the schools that he he works in. And uh, I started using it uh, <laughs> on my personal life more than my professional, especially at the beginning. Uh, you know, the, the foundation of ACT is increasing psychological flexibility and I, by nature, am a very inflexible person. And I think <laughs> that was where I was getting stuck a lot in my group homework because, again, I was, why aren't they following my plans? Why isn't it going this way? I'm doing these really cool assessments and why aren't people buying in? Quickly realizing that maybe I was part of the, the problem and why things mm. weren't kind of progressing in any way, not even my way. Mm. <laughs> so I started practicing, like, as I was meeting with Kevin and reading all the all of his books and he has some crowdcasts and kind of immersing myself in the act matrix so I started practicing it a lot on myself just in different pickles that I found myself in uh, every day both professionally and personally and uh, it's you know the matrix has four four questions at the beginning of you know who or what's important what are some of the hard or uncomfortable thoughts feelings or things that come up in your day what do you do to get relief from those hard or yucky, uncomfortable thoughts, feelings? And uh, what do you do to move towards or, you know, to feel satisfied in, in, uh, in your life? You know, how do you, what are some of the things that you do to chase the life that you, that you want? And I found that really helpful, again, both in my professional and, and uh, personal life of just kind of grounding myself and being in the present moment and noticing you know, where I am right now and I can choose to do this behavior or I can choose to do something else. And how did that work for me? And once I had kind of practiced it on myself, I got in doing some crowdcasts and met a whole pile of people. I think just the the online learning and the online platforms, crowdcast is an awesome application that just mm. connects people. And and I realized that there is a whole lot of a lot of people consulting in group homes around the world. So I was unfortunate to, to kind of meet a lot of people along the way. And then, yeah, I started doing it more and more in my practice. And now I use it almost every day with, with the group homes and the staff that I, I consult with. So it's been a pretty cool, cool journey. I'm still learning. I'm still, you know, uh, bumping along a lot of the time. But I want to say that I'm getting more efficient. <laughs> so and this, this is, I think this is where the you know conversations around uh, I'm often involved in conversations around kind of scope of competence or, or scope and competence and 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 uh, and making sure that you've got you know you've had the right training and mentorship and whatnot when you're kind of jumping into something brand new absolutely and I mean you already introduced that it was wonderful to hear that you got some mentorship before you j jumped into adult services um, and then of course you've spoken to a lot of these good folks. In, in the act world, act is huge. 
Um, like there seems to be so many applications there, you know, they've got their own society, um, that's massive worldwide. Um, it's, it's been, it seems like it's been only kind of, although, you know, and, and folks can, there's lots of really good podcasts out there. I highly recommend several of the behavior observations podcasts on act. Um, there's a great one with, I think there's a great one with Steve Hayes in there. There's a bunch of, um, podcasts. I don't know if you've ever heard uh, Act Roots to Fruits podcast. No. Uh, or, or Root to Fruits. Um, it's uh, uh, Marce- Marcel's his first name, and I can never pronounce his last name. Um, and uh, check it out. It's a really good podcast. And he's just interviewing ACT people all the oh, time, sweet. and he's a ACT practitioner himself. Um, so lots and lots of, of, of places out there where folks can you know, uh, learn more about that. But I, from, from what I, from, from the little I understand, and I've had no mentorship and very little training in ACT, I'm, I'm fortunate actually to have a, a BCBA uh, intern, an inter, a person that's interning to become a BCBA under me who's been getting mentorship in ACT and doing a lot of training. And she's in a, in a way becoming my mentor. Um, so I've, I've been kind of lucky to have that. But my point being, there's, there's a lot to it. And there's a lot of, there's there's a lot of concepts and there's a lot of different directions you can go. I guess question one is: Are you just in the kind of this act matrix kind of area, or are you doing other things? I'm so far just in the act matrix area. What I like about kind of how the matrix has connected with you know ABA uh, principles and kind of behavior analysis in general is that it looks at the behaviors and you know, what, what function the behavior is serving? Like, is that behavior Mm. moving you closer to the good stuff in your life or is Mm -hmm. your behavior getting, giving you relief or moving you away from the uncomfortable or hard stuff? And I think that's so applicable for the, the clients that, that I consult with and even the staff teams uh, to, to kind of put themselves in the client's shoes. Like when they're, you know, escalating or showing precursor behaviors, looking at the behavior and trying to figure out what are they, what are they telling you? What are they trying to communicate? Are they, you know, behavior is not good or bad. It's not positive or negative. It just is. And within that environment, it works for the individual to either, you know, help like to get closer to something that's important or to, to move away from something that's hard. So I just, I, so far I've really enjoyed how the act matrix kind of sorts all of that stuff out. It doesn't discount any internal uh, thoughts, feelings of the person, but it, it it puts that into the matrix and looks at then the behaviors that kind of come out of those, those internal um, thoughts and feelings, which I, I think is really cool. And like we know, you know, adults, there's a lot of, a lot of dynamics, a lot of complex diagnoses and, and medication side effects. And, you know, so many things that we can look at and, we can sort that all into the matrix of, you know, maybe if we've noticed some medication side effects, that's something that could be potentially really hard for the client. What else could be hard? What else, you know, might be coming up? The client has a lot of infections or a lot of, you know, limited mobility and and stuff like that. So I, I just really enjoy being able to take what the staff are saying and showing them, you know, where sorting with them, uh, where it can go in the matrix and kind of figuring out what to do next. I don't know if that answer makes sense, but. (laughs) No, for sure. And so, and so how, um, what does that look like? So do you, do you just, uh, like, how does your sort of, uh, what your kind of your whole, uh, 
process go when you kind of first meet a team and, and when does the matrix kind of come into place initially? The next secret word is group. Definitely. From day one, um, I, I have used it. I now use the matrix as my main intake questionnaire, basically. So I'll meet with, uh, you know, whether it's the family or whether it's the the group home or, you know, home supervisors or higher ups. And I'll just kind of, you know, introduce myself and show uh, my point of view that I work from. So behavior analytic point of view through the matrix. So I'll just draw out the bisecting lines. So it just, you know, four squares. And I just kind of uh, start there. Like I, you know, the good stuff, the hard stuff, and what does the person do? And I ask if that's mm. an okay, you know, if that seems like an okay process or a process that the family or staff want to learn about and, and hang out with me with. And then I'll I'll ask all the questions from the perspective of the client. And then I'll do another, what we call a loop of the matrix. So it's all of the, the questions from, uh, it's called the pro-social matrix. So this would be done mm. um, with the group home staff team. So just more than two people. And asking, you know, what's your shared purpose or, you know, what's what's your goal? Why are you guys here working in this group home and and seeing what their what their goals are, seeing what their shared purposes are together as a team. And even that gives me some really good information of where the team is in that moment. So whether, you know, the team is have really strong, uh, consistent shared purposes or whether the staff team are there for a paycheck it it doesn't really matter Mm -hmm. but it's good for me to know because you know it gives Mm -hmm. me an idea of their motivation and their how much they're they maybe want to participate or you know their ideas and stuff like that and so that's cool so would would you find yourself repeatedly going through the matrix throughout the process of a case or is it just sort of the intro thing to get see where everybody's at and then now I know where you're at so we'll move forward I'll definitely do it as the intro and then it depends if especially so I do it a lot during my assessment because oftentimes when I go in to do an observation they're different staff and I know you know mm. some of the answers to my questions might change from day to day mm. so you know today ice cream might be really important to the client but last week it was her shoes you know, so it kind of gives me a, a, a plethora of potential of reinforcers of what, you know, who and what's important to the person. Um, the shared purposes of the staff might change. It kind of just gives me a, a good idea of, you know, the, the context in its entirety. Once the assessment's done, oftentimes, this is what I'm still trying to figure out. Um, I definitely bring it out when the staff team is stuck on something. So just to help, (laughs) like I said, the matrix, I use it on myself because it was a really good self-management tool for me. Um, Mm -hmm. I used to get very frustrated in like during group home sessions because I I would, I would just get very frustrated and I would get flustered and I would just leave in a huff and, or, or, you know, wrap things up really quickly because it was getting nowhere and, and, and stuff like that. I'm sure, I'm sure you can appreciate, uh, Ben being in the, (laughs) being in the field. So, um, what I do during, you know, once the behavior support plan is created, if the staff team are stuck on something, um, I'll either pull out the, the matrix and do it with them. So, Hey, you guys have seen this before. I'm just going to sort you know, everything out, if that's okay with you. 
um, or I just do it for myself. So especially over Zoom, like sometimes if the staff is on their phone, you know, it's hard to share my screen and do all that stuff. So I'll just, Mm -hmm. you know, I'll have it out in front of me and the staff will will talk and I'll just kind of sort what their experience was um, into the, the, the kind of the squares that I think they should go in. It's not ideal. I'd rather do it with them, but uh, it, it helps clear my head and it gives the staff mm-hmm. an opportunity to kind of, you know, explain and talk about all the hard things that came up during this incident or all the hard things that came mm-hmm. up, you know, between the staff team or between the residents and kind of, you know, moving forward with like, is there anything that we want to do differently or that we might do differently? What did you notice? Did that work? And, and stuff like that. I really like how you use it for yourself, um, uh, not only just in your personal life, but sort of just, you know, to keep yourself present and kind of, you know, on point uh, during consultation, I think. And that's probably, you know, makes it a lot easier to then do it with with the other folks. Um, I think that that's that's neat. Um, I actually tried it on. I'm not a very good sleeper and I've been trying to find I have read every sleep. I know you have a podcast on sleep. I saw it. Um, I haven't. I yes. haven't listened to it yet, but I'm I'm anxious to. But I uh, I told myself last night that I would I would just notice like if I was awake at night, I would just notice my thoughts and just kind of tack them like any time like oh I notice that I'm thinking about whatever, and I actually woke up feeling really satisfied because I still hmm. didn't sleep. You know from from time I went to bed till time I woke up, that'll probably never be the case. But I felt like I was doing something different instead of just lying there hoping that I fall asleep. <laughs> yep. So it was a new, a new, a new part that I brought, you know, a new way that I brought the matrix into my into my my subconscious life as well, I guess. Well <laughs> Yeah. I think I think I think that's episode four with uh, Hillary and, and Nicole. And I know that's something they talk about, about sort of lying in bed just waiting for it to happen is never oh going to work gosh. and you kind of got to get up and get up and kind of do something different. So that, that makes, that makes a lot of sense for sure. Um, you just, you just brought up pro social matrix. So is pro social matrix different than act matrix? And, and why is it called pro social matrix? Like what's that? about? It's the same. So it's the same uh, process, I guess. So you still ask the four first questions. Um, so who are, mm-hmm. who, who's important? What are some of the hard thoughts, feelings, things that come up and the behaviors? And then, you know, do you think you'll have the opportunity to notice any of these things over the next couple of days? That's the the me matrix. So that would be the matrix that you would do on yourself or with, you know, one other person. And the pro-social matrix is the same questions, except you would do it with Mm. a group. So two or more people. Mm. So whether it's parents or, you know, colleagues, a staff team, home supervisor with the higher up, you know, management um, people. And the kind of the last question or in addition to the, the other questions is the workability. So is what you're doing working at bringing you closer to your shared purpose as a staff team? So, you know, kind of bringing it back to the shared goal of the staff team and, you know, the contextual fit of the of the team and, you know, making sure that what you're doing is actually working. <laughs> okay, cool. And pro-social, that comes from something. Like the, there's, I've I've heard that term before. Is that like a... Do you know what is is that a it thing? It is, it is definitely a thing. I 
I can't tell you where it's from. I know I've seen it yeah. in articles yeah. and in books. Yeah. Uh, so I can't say where it's from, but it's definitely a thing. Yeah. <laughs> I believe, I believe there's a website and, uh, called pro social something. And <laughs> this is really, 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 you're going to, you're going you're gonna to earn your CEUs today, folks, <laughs> with, uh, Ran- random, random, non-specific statements. Uh, pro-social something or other. <laughs> uh, but that, but that there's, there's a, there was a, a woman who sort of, um, you know, I'm gonna butcher in this, but she came up with the concept of pro-social and apparently, like, won a Nobel Prize or something. Oh. Like, there's, there's a Nobel Prize connection. It's a Nobel Prize or a Pulitzer Prize, one of those big prizes connection to all this and. And uh, I will find it and put it in the show notes uh, because it's a good word. I feel I'm, yeah, I, I, I agree. <laughs> um, and I'll and I'll add those other podcasts to into the show notes for folks that are interested. In, and there's actually one more podcast um, if you're just sort of interested in learning more about kind of different things folks are doing in kind of adult services. And it's called PBS Matters. I don't know if Ooh, you've heard of that no. one. It's called PBS Matters, based in the UK, and. Uh, when we were talking sort of last week there in our kind of pre-chat, I was telling you about sort of a lot of the good work that's being done in the UK and group homes. Um, These folks kind of interview all those folks are doing the good work in the UK. And a lot of it is sort of group home kind of residential focused. um, And they, there's a really good one on practice leadership um, um, and uh, sort of just kind of how to build up sort of working with managers and stuff and sort of higher level folks in, in these agencies is really interesting. That's yeah, um, that sounds great. I have to get into. I have to. I haven't uh, listened to podcasts in quite a while, Ben. You were you were the the first. I listened to a couple of your podcasts, and you were the first first ones I listened to in a while. So I need to get back into them. Oh wow! <laughs> well, nobody's driving anymore, right? It's and true. so I think that I think that was the context for all these podcasts getting created in the first place. Was that we had all these folks traveling from appointment to appointment, stuck in traffic. Uh, felt like their time was being wasted and suddenly discovered, Hey, I can earn CEUs while sitting on the bridge, you know? And so we haven't been driving for a while. So I think the podcasts have, have, uh, I've noticed some of them have sort of faded away a bit. Some of them have taken a break. Uh, you know, uh, there's still lots of time for hikes and and, and walking the dog. So, (laughs) um, (laughs) or just, or just maybe having trouble sleeping, listen to a podcast on, on sleep. Is that right? (laughs) (laughs) Let's let's see kind of how that goes. Um, one thing we talked about too last week was, which I kind of wanted to dive into a little more was how folks can go about learning more about the act matrix and, uh, and getting some training on it. Like what's out there? Yes, absolutely. So I, uh, did my training with, uh, Kevin Polk. He does. So there's a bunch of crowdcast channels on now. Matrix talk is Kevin and Phil's crowdcast. I think they do at least three a week and they have a, um, membership or like a Patreon account. And that's how I joined. Mm. So, you know, they do a couple of mastermind sessions a week where you can go and uh, see them over Zoom and ask questions and practice. Mm. Um, That was the main one. And then Tina Long has some crowdcasts and so do I. Um, And Tina, actually, Tina and I just started a behavior talk crowdcast for, you know, the matrix. But what do we call it? It's the um, functional behavior assessment slash behavior planning matrix. Uh, so it's kind of incorporates the act matrix into behavior planning and functional assessment, which is 
kind of near and dear cool. to our hearts, obviously. So, um, and then Kevin Polk has a number of books. They're called the act matrix. One has a blue cover. The other one has a, a beige cover and, uh, Phil Tenalia has a social emotional learning and the act matrix, a trifold kind of book booklet trifold, uh, mm-hmm. for in schools for social emotional learning in schools. So I can, I can send all of those to you, uh, Ben with links, if, if that would be easier. <laughs> That would be amazing as I feverishly write all this down. Blue, trifold, social. Oh, no. I'm never going to get these. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Uh, Cool. Um, And so so kind of another question kind of going back to around related to the training, kind of going back to competency. If my intern is out there listening, uh, a lot of this stems from our conversation we had. So this may sound familiar to her. like, what sort of the minimum you need to try using the matrix in some context? I would probably just say practicing the the loops. Um, I think, you know, Kevin yeah. and Phil had me going from, you know, I, I just had to, so they modeled how to do the matrix. And then I practiced a couple times on their crowdcasts. And then they watched a few of my crowdcasts. And they just kind of said, yay or nay, if I was following the process. Um, oh, so nice. I think you can, you know, just practice it a few times, get comfortable with it. I would say I definitely recommend practicing it on yourself, uh, before practicing it with other people. That was just my, the mm-hmm. way I did it. And I found mm-hmm. it really helpful to kind of see the, the truly the goodness of the matrix and how, you know, your own behavior change can be affected by it, I guess, self-directed behavior change. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's how I kind of started practicing so that's interesting so kevin and phil's crowdcast well it's just stepping back a bit because i think some folks are going to wonder i actually don't even really know myself what is crowdcast crowdcast is a platform i believe it was it was started at the start of covid or you know it's the product of the pandemic Interesting. it's just a platform for hosting events so there are different tiers but you you can you know, create an event and you can go live, you know, the next minute, like you can create an event for whenever and it has everything embedded into it. So you can, if you want to charge for your, your crowdcast, you can do it right through, I think it's Stripe, um, through crowdcast, you can link it to your Patreon or your Zapier, like email, um, email threads and, and, and such, uh, you can, you know, have coupon codes and you can have limited seats and you can have, you know, there's just so much. I highly recommend it for anyone who's looking to host events or, you know, spread the good word of, you know, whatever topic that you want to talk about. Uh, And the participants, they, so you can invite people up so that they can see, like, it's not just you on screen um, or, Mm -hmm. or you're the only one on screen and all the other participants are participating via a chat. So it's kind of nice. You don't, you know, the participants don't have to be on video or or anything like that. So they can, they can, you know, type out if they have a question and there's, yeah, and there's a donation button. So if, you know, but yeah, it it truly has everything and they come up with new updates quite frequently. And anyway, I, (laughs) Crowdcast is not paying me for this endorsement, I swear. But uh, yeah, it's a really great platform for talking about any, anything you want to spread. The third secret word is matrix. That's amazing. Okay, that's cool. I was wondering because I, I, I've really only seen yourselves and uh, Tina's uh, events on there. And, and uh, it seemed just more like a kind of a Zoom 
go-to meeting thing, but it sounds like it's that with every other feature you could imagine. So that's really neat. Going back to that, I was kind of think what you're suggesting with sort of Kevin and Phil's crowdcast is that it sounds if it's connected to a Patreon account and as I understand with Patreon, it's fairly inexpensive to sort of join those Patreon groups. Yeah. And they do a lot of crowdcasts for free as well. Like I know, um, I think on Monday and Wednesdays, they do free crowdcasts on various topics. Um, I know they've done a number on relational frame theory and, and, Mm. you know, they've done a couple on sleep as well. And for, for any topics that kind of come up, they, they'll do crowdcasts on them. So they do have a, 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 you know, a quite robust free, free uh, crowdcast channel as well. So for anyone Mm, who wants to kind of just get into the matrix or dip their toe in, uh, they have a ton of free stuff. Which is that's super awesome, but also but also sounds like even with with a small sort of you know paid subscription or however that kind of works, um, you're you're able to get a little bit of mentorship Absolutely. as well. They're they're actually looking at the work you're doing and giving you feedback. Absolutely, yeah. And there it was it was really hard at the beginning. Um, again, I'm an inflexible person, so I'm always looking for very <laughs> direct answers. And a lot of their answers to my questions were, "Yeah, that sounds good," or "Did it work?" <laughs> uh, so it was kind of a, a a question response. So it I had to get used to it because it's true. It, it's you know find out what works for you within within the process of the matrix. So it was a really good experience on that end as well. It kind of helped with my they helped with my psychological flexibility just you know within their own process of the matrix. So cool. Does the matrix and and again uh, does the matrix eventually kind of delve more into the the stuff around the hexaflex and that because that, that what, what i understand for act it's a lot of it's centered around this this sort of six process um or six i don't know the steps the right word but six sort of process or six concept model that they call the hexaflex for one reason or another and uh you know and i can't remember all the different uh you know committed action and be in the present moment and some other ones in there. Does that stuff all apply to the matrix or is it, or is it, or is it, is it, is it separate? Yeah. So the, the six processes of the hexaflex do fit into the matrix really nicely. You kind of like on the bottom, okay, I have to, it's been a while since I visualized this uh, without writing it down, but so on the bottom right where the, you know, who and what's important, that would be values. So the values process, the, the middle line. Um, so the vertical line at the bottom, I know, explaining it over without seeing it, it's kind of probably for our listeners might not be <laughs> anyway. So the bottom, the, uh, vertical line. So at the bottom is, uh, self as context, the bottom left square is uh, diffusion. Top left square is acceptance. The top middle, uh, vertical line at the top is present moment awareness. And then the committed action is at the far top right square. Okay. And so, Good job, by the oh, way. Well, I... Doing that without without paper, <laughs> and, and for anyone for anyone who notices, maybe one of those terms is yes, in the wrong spot. I apologize. Um, send send me the letter, <laughs> not not Monica. It's not her fault. She, I didn't I didn't prep her for this um, because I know so little about act. I don't even know if I'm asking the right questions. But um, is the idea that you as you take someone through the loops of the matrix that the way you're going to kind of guide and respond them 
is related to those concepts? I think so. Yeah. And this is the part where I'm kind of still figuring out for myself what I would love to be able to do, especially with group home staff. I was actually talking about this with my my mentor, Jen, um, because she's kind of in the same same boat of I would love Mm. to be able to, you know, if I'm speaking to a staff and they say something, being able to label what it is that they're saying, like, are they fused with something? Are they not accepting, Mm. you know, something happening? Or are they living Mm. in, you know, not the present moments? Or are they, you know, living in past, in the past or stuck on a story that happened two weeks ago or what have you? And being able to kind of label it and sort it out in my head and be able to give a response that will help the clients or help the staff kind of through. And I mean, that's just that's just looking deeper into the matrix. I would probably just continue with, yeah. with, um, you know, helping them notice what, what they're going through in that moment and, and figuring out some committed action, um, steps, but kind of sorting out in that way of looking deeper into those, into those concepts and, and being able to, to fluently label, you know, where the staff is based on the words that they're, they're saying. Nice. Nice. Yeah. It sounds like you're doing it like, a lot of kind of ongoing continuous learning, which is fantastic and really important and really fits into, um, I think I want to say, is it 1.02 maybe in the ethics code around maintaining that competence and kind of, kind of keeping that piece going that eventually you're going to get to just build more and more onto this as we go along. And maybe next time we chat, you'll have, you know, a, a wider matrix sort of, uh, approach to, to kind of discuss. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I've just I've noticed such a huge difference in my own practice and then just the conversations. So the the common terminology that develops from practicing the matrix with the staff. So words like important and hard and, you know, behaviors mm. and noticing, um, you know, I'll go in, I'll, you know, do the matrix with the staff team for the first time. And the next week I'll go in and the staff will be like, oh, my gosh, I noticed something else that was important to the client that I forgot to tell you last week. And it's oh, like, holy neat. cow, you, we just did this once and you're already, you're already using the words and you're already, um, clearly noticing behaviors and, you know, noticing other things in the client and your yeah. environment. So just that, that whole piece too has been just that common language and the, the, what's the word, the, the, like the easier the conversation flows when you know, we're looking at who and what's important to, both to use a staff team, but also to the client. And I, coming from, you know, uh, personal experience, working in group home settings, you know, can really start to create a bit of a brain fog and, and really start to sort of uh, almost create a bit of tunnel vision. And you really just stop, you know, noticing things. And, and, I, and so I, I can totally see the value of just even being able to sort of tack different things in the environment that you just weren't paying attention to before. Like I never realized that uh, I never even paid attention to the fact that, you know, he's, he's engaging in self injury next to our locked, our locked fridge every day, you know, to bring back the sort of restrictive practice we were talking about earlier, but you know, they just start picking up on sorts of things that, that they might not pick up on before. And that can lead to a whole different set of thought processes and a whole set of different discussions. I oh imagine, my gosh, eh? like a 180. So now we're not just talking about, oh, it's his mental health. Oh, it's his OCD. Right. Oh, it's his autism. Yeah. Oh, it's his ID. Yeah. Oh, it's his, you know, IBS or whatever. Now we're talking yeah. about, okay, yeah. yes, 
it could also be, it could be all those things. What else could it be? What did you notice right before it happened? What did you notice after it happened? You know, we're now getting into the, like, yes, all the internal stuff is important. Oh my gosh. It's hard for the person. All of that stuff, no doubt plays a role. Um, But what else could it be? What else was hard? Was there anything hard in the environment? Was there anything that could be hard that may have been hard that was easier this time? (laughs) And what behaviors did they do to, to get relief from that hard, that hard thing or event or, you know, context and uh, on the same breath, you know, what, what did they do? Did the person do to, to get more of, you know, someone who was important to them or something that was Mm -hmm. important to them? This all kind of leads to, and and I don't know if you've kind of gone this direction yet with, with your teams, but do you have teams that are, are doing any kind of mindfulness practices? That seems like a thing that would probably be helpful for, you know, because it seems to be really about kind of, you know, being more present and just being more aware and and noticing things that you didn't notice before because you weren't paying attention. A hundred percent. I don't have any teams that do mindfulness work, but I could absolutely see the benefit of it, of just taking a step back, coming out of the story and coming out of the words and, and, you know, seeing what, what's, what's actually happening or, you know, what other things could be occurring in the environment. We recently had our, our, our provincial ABA chapter conference and um, we were lucky enough to get, uh, well, it's, it's a lot easier to get anyone these days because it's all on <laughs> Zoom, but we were, <laughs> we, we, were we, 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 we were blessed to get uh, Nurbe Singh. Oh. Uh, are you familiar with that name? I am, but tell me more. So Nurbe has been around for a long time. He's been in this field forever, yet it's, quite a few journals, several, uh, several of them have the word mindfulness in them. I think there's one journal called mindfulness that he edits and he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a BCBAD and, and he practices and he's kind of, I think he's based, I want to say he's based in Georgia, but I'm not sure. Anyway, a lot of his research, most of his research is, is around, uh, basically around teaching folks mindfulness and the power of, uh, of meditation. Um, and he, and he does, uh, he, he, one area that, kind of drew me to him was he he's published a lot of papers on what's called what he calls a uh, mindfulness based positive behavior support. Oh, cool. And so you can imagine the sort of a, a sort of a standard PBS model. And what he's done is he's, he, he did a couple studies where he did, he did. Uh, and I think, I think they were randomized control trials, which was, makes them even cooler um, of he placed one group in the PBS group, which basically got all of the traditional PBS interventions and anything else folks wanted to try. Like it didn't matter. Folks could try act. Folks could do whatever they wanted in sort of this PBS model and then sort of looked at the results there. The second group, the only difference was the, uh, the staff teams were essentially taught to meditate for a, a period every day like 10 minutes a day or 20 minutes a day. And that was it. And the results were exponential in terms of, of the drops in challenging behavior and the increases in quality of life and all those outcomes for the clients wow. who weren't getting the mindfulness training. Yeah. You know? So it was all the staff teams getting the mindfulness training. You know, he's done stuff. He's, he's done a lot of work around teaching mindfulness to, you know, the, the, the actual individuals themselves, which is also awesome and, and has a lot of, really neat applications, but to show like, you know, in a nice RCT format that, uh, you know, this alone, and then just adding this one component, 
um, made that made that massive amount of difference. Um, really, really neat stuff. So I, I definitely see, you know, that being a, a direction we need to go more with our kind of residential staff is, is teaching them mindfulness practices. Absolutely. Because like you had said before, like it, you get into kind of that fog as a residential staff. So, you know, by increasing the mindfulness, it might bring them out of that fog and, and get them kind of in that present moment to, to see things from a different perspective, maybe. Totally. Really neat. And I, and I really kind of see how that whole mindfulness approach can really merge nicely with, um, you know, a, a lot of the act stuff. So I think it's all, it's all kind of one and the same. And, and, and mindfulness does seem to be a component of, of some of what's happening. Absolutely. That present moment awareness and noticing where you are right now and kind of noticing what your behavior and absolutely. Yeah. So just kind of maybe to kind of start thinking about kind of closing things off for folks out there that are, 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 you know, maybe starting in adult services or have been working in group homes for a long time and just struggling, what kind of, what, what, where would you suggest they kind of go to maybe try a different approach? I would 100% suggest finding a mentor, finding someone. I was fortunate enough to know somebody through my master's program whom I, who I kept in touch with, uh, you know, years later. So I was, I would highly recommend finding someone to help build that confidence and, and give you an, you know, an analytic perspective for a different population. You know, I may have been a a wonderful, very competent VCBA with children, but going into the adult services, I was definitely not. So I, I, Mm -hmm. oh my gosh, I can't, you know, say enough good things about, about the importance of finding that mentorship. And then I just, I found every book I could or every, you know, article or every, or, you know, webinars that I, I look through, you know, I definitely am more cognizant of the mm-hmm. adult services and, you know, anything to do with mm-hmm. the adult population. Um, so I would definitely recommend, obviously, looking for those. But I really think the mentorship was was the the way for me to to build that confidence. Cool. And then, of course, uh, we've now learned about the wonderful world of Crowdcast. So there's a ton of resources absolutely in that realm as well. Well, that's cool. Um, thanks so much for being on the on, on the show today with me, Monica. It was super awesome, super interesting, really to kind of hear about, uh, hear, hear that there's actually another approach in, in settings that I think a lot of folks have given up on. I think there's a lot of folks that have probably worked with adults and gone back to working with kids because it was just it's too hard. It's hard and, and, and it's exhausting. <laughs> Absolutely. And I mean, I, I mean, I, I think the one plus maybe for those folks is that they're now going back to those children and going, this is what they're growing up yeah. to be. Having that perspective, I think, is great to, when you're going back. And if you have, if you work with kids only, I highly recommend working with adults for a little bit because it really, you know, it really shapes sort of, you know, the kind of teaching you want to be focusing on. What are the skills they really need when they're 25 and when they're 40 versus what you think they might need to get into grade one? My eyes and my mind were opened the day that I started working with adults. Absolutely. Yeah. Perfect. So let's, let's get more people working with adults. Lots of, we we really need it. Everyone's going to be an adult and uh, we really need more folks kind of working in that area. Thanks again for being on the podcast. Real real great pleasure chatting with you. Oh, Ben, I so appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great.